Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Manuel Garcia, Chief Executive Officer of Indu Limited. It's wonderful to have you along again today for the Arate Podcast, and I thank you to those people who have listened on an ongoing basis for your support and encouragement. And I hope that uh, you will continue to see excellent return on investment for your hour or so each episode in terms of the great information and stories that are presented by my guests. And today's guest, Manuel Garcia, is certainly no exception. For those people who are a new listener, let me briefly introduce myself to you. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We're a Brisbane-based executive search company that recruits CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. And uh, I certainly would appreciate anybody who has any recruitment requirements within your organisation reaching out and making contact so we can have a discussion about how we can potentially help you. I'd also encourage those of you who have LinkedIn profiles, and I trust that that is almost 100%. It's uh, a necessity in terms of building and maintaining your professional profile in the market in today's uh, social media age. Uh, to please reach out and send me a LinkedIn connection request if we're not already connected, so I then can in turn invite you to join the CEO Incubator community, which is a great way for you to network with your peers across industry. Let's get on now with our conversation and allow me to introduce to you Manuel Garcia. Manuel Garcia has an extensive background as a senior executive within the financial services sector. He worked for National Australia Bank for over 20 years in both Australia and the UK and has been the CEO of Indu since 2003. Manuel has a Bachelor of Business and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He's also a Senior Fellow of the Financial Services Institute of Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Manuel Garcia. So, Manuel, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's Thanks, great Richard. to have you along. We're recording this uh, in Brisbane in the week leading up to Christmas, so uh, it's uh, fantastic for you to make the time, and I'm sure that we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Just to begin with, perhaps for the people who are listening to the podcast, um, can you just have a bit of a chat about your current range of professional responsibilities? So I'm the Chief Executive of Inju. Inju is the provider of innovative payment solutions, my range of responsibilities really stretch from formulating strategy to uh, executing that strategy to delivering on the results that we commit to, to working with our stakeholders, be they shareholders, be they customers, to try and manage the organisation to continue to meet its demands relative to the growth plans that we have. Okay. Um, we don't work in isolation, obviously. Um, so we're uh, essentially a mutually owned organisation. So stakeholder management is probably a little bit more, a um, little bit more tricky, a little bit more complicated. And I guess uh, I spend a lot of time trying to get all our stakeholders to come with us on the same journey. Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't familiar with the actual business, Indu, um, tell us a bit about that. So Indu provides, as I said, uh, innovative payment solutions. We have. Uh, we operate on, uh, across the whole value chain. So we look at both um, from building, manufacturing the product for someone uh, to do whatever it is that they particularly have in mind to capture within payments, mm -hmm. to then the whole processing the operational environments through to settlements, through to closure, through to the fulfillment of the actual payment transaction. So we can work end to end, mm -hmm. or we can work in a more segmented way where, for example, then we may build, be building a product for another bank, and that bank may choose to do their own settlements, in which case then we can, we can narrow our, our sphere of work within the value chain so mm -hmm. that we deliver maybe the manufactured product, the processing engine, and they do their own settlements. Okay, and so give us a couple of examples of what an innovative payment solution is. So we, long time ago, I guess if I, if I, if I look at something that was uh, more long term, 
and then if I look at something a little bit more recent. Sure. Uh, I guess maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, maybe even a little bit longer, um, if I think about rewards and I think about loyalty programs, uh, for a very long time people perceived loyalty and reward programs to be all about uh, exotic, all about sexy items that, that really um, captured our imagination. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, that was a long-held established practice or belief, uh, certainly within the cards industry, until Woolworths and Coles did something which was quite transformational in, in challenging that. And what they did was uh, introduce fuel vouchers. Mm-hmm. And fuel vouchers, to, to me, doesn't necessarily fit exotic or, or sexy. It's very sure. vanilla. Um, but the important thing in what they did is that they proved two things. One is that they broke this tie to, to an exotic reward. Mm-hmm. And secondly, they also um, broke the, the, the linkage in our mindset that says that a reward has to be substantial in value. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a few dollars at the petrol vouchers was a significant enough reward. Um, at that time, time, we went one further and said, well, picking up those concepts, the ultimate reward would be to give you a way of accumulating value as you earned it and being able to spend it wherever you choose. So rather than us prescribing reward X or reward Y from a catalogue, um, giving you the freedom to use your reward dollars, so to speak, to purchase whatever it is you wanted. Mm-hmm. So out of that idea, we birthed a product called Rewarder, and what Rewarder did is it effectively was a, a point accumulator, a rewards, a loyalty point accumulator, and it converted those points into cash. Mm-hmm. It put them on a debit card, which you were then able to use in any place that accepted FPOS across Australia. The good thing about it is that your rewards can actually give you more bang for buck because obviously that it didn't stop you from getting or taking advantage of discounts that you may get it sure. as, as we will no doubt have uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time. <laughs> yes. So that to me is an example where we captured an idea out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people did uh, different variations on that. Okay. Um, more recently, uh, I guess that the, uh, an innovation for me that I think is profound, um, probably more profound than I think we will we will appreciate today, and that is uh, government welfare. Mm-hmm. So government welfare payments to me um, have been known for their lack of innovation for a very long time. So in other words, we have always distributed or dispersed government welfare payments through very traditional payment products. Um, Moving away from traditional payment products, uh, which are generally quite reliable and cheap, is hard. But the benefits of moving away are quite profound for a government. The most profound benefit being a better control of how the money is dispersed and mm-hmm. importantly how it's actually used. So mm-hmm. does the policy that we, we create and its intent get fulfilled by the way in which the payment is actually uh, driven in, in the hands of the recipient? INDU had the privilege of working with the federal government uh, probably 2009 in uh, developing uh, something then that was uh, quite innovative and in fact still is regarded quite innovative which was the creation of Basics Card, which was mm-hmm. the fulfilment or the practical fulfilment of a government's policy called income management, which restricted the amount of money that people could spend um, uh, in terms of their welfare payments. Mm-hmm. In the case of Basics Card, up to 50 to 70% of their income was restricted and could only be spent on basic fruit and veg and, and stuff, clothing that they needed to live in. From there, we've extended that innovation into what will go to market February next year, which will be the Healthy Welfare Card, or now Cashless Debit Card, as it's known, um, which again puts Australia at the forefront of innovative uh, ways to deliver welfare to recipients. Mm. And so is that a situation where you go to the government and say, we've got this idea, and you're essentially pitching it uh, as a completed uh, product to them, or was it a situation where they came to you and said, we're looking to do something uh, more innovative in the way that we distribute these funds, how can you help us? Uh, Probably a little bit of both. Uh, Certainly the initiation was the government. The Mm -hmm. government wanted to reform its payment system, so under when Kevin Rudd came to power, the government decided that they would um, explore what was available in payments and how they could reform the way they make payments. So they saw an opportunity with cards 
And so their, their focus was primarily on how can we do what we do differently? We think cards is a good idea. Mm-hmm. What we then did was help take their ideas and bring them into reality. Okay. So whilst they had ideas of what they would like to achieve, they weren't quite necessarily sure how they could do that within the payment systems. Um, we helped them solve those problems. And the same with healthy welfare cards. So we okay. don't always create the idea. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people come up come to us with an idea, mm. what we do is turn their idea into reality. Mm. And is that a situation where you have to tender for that work or because you've got such a unique uh, position in the market, you know, you can control that process? Um, I wish I could say that we didn't have to tender. Right. <laughs> but like all organisations, uh, I guess for the government in particular, probity is a very big issue. Mm-hmm. So I think for them it is very hard to, uh, to do anything other but run tenders although there are some instances where they can run, uh, and they've certainly done this with us, where there is a unique uh, product or capability mm-hmm. that can be delivered and the government wants that, and then they, they run their own separate process, right. which is like a tender, but it's it's all around driving value for money. Okay. Uh, and so who would you be competing against then? Um, uh, what other um, players operate in uh, this space or are there uh, more traditional financial services organisations that step across into this space? Um, so I guess in Australia, probably every bank, certainly the four major banks have a keen interest mm-hmm. uh, in either working with us or I guess competing against us for welfare payments. If I look at, and so so in our case, it's certainly the banks. I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily sure that in our market it's the best example. Mm-hmm. If I look at other markets, I think some interesting things happen where software companies work with banking institutions to deliver a product to government. Mm-hmm. So for example, the software company may develop the product, the, the processing engine, so to speak, that will run the payment and the banking provider provides the settlement services that right. can do. Okay. The advantage that we have in our country is that we can do both. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I think certainly uh, for people who were unfamiliar with your organisation, that's a great uh, quick introduction. So why don't we go back to uh, where it all began for you? I like to start the conversation in terms of where you were born and your um, family that you grew up with, brothers and sisters, early schooling, etc. Tell us a little bit about that. So I was born in Spain uh-huh. and uh, in Madrid, uh, albeit I probably, and my, my family uh, came to Australia when I was five, so 1968. Um, I probably would have liked to have thought and probably would have thought for a long time that I recalled a lot of Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, in actual fact, uh, I, when I went there, uh, I think back in 1990, I realised that, in fact, I had no recollection whatsoever right. as a young five-year-old. Uh, what I saw was was kind of new to me. Okay. So uh, although I was born in Spain, pretty much Australia is my home. I've spent all my life here by the first five years. Right. And why did they come here? Um, I guess the way my father tells it. Um, so when my parents left Spain, it was still a dictatorship under Franco. Mm-hmm. So um, for my father, he was in search of opportunity, better opportunity for his children than what he could necessarily see under the dictatorship of Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in those days, I guess, um, you know, the dictatorship still had many years to run. So for him, he couldn't see... Yeah, maybe he couldn't see or maybe he wasn't prepared to wait um, for opportunity to change mm-hmm. and sort prospects somewhere else. And I guess in those days too, Australia was hungry for the skill mm-hmm. that largely existed in Europe and so it was very generous and kind in opening its arms right. to, to skilled workers that came from, from Europe. And what was his profession? So he was uh, a boilermaker. Okay. So he spent a lot more, all his life in, in steel fabrication. Okay, right. And mm. so Brisbane was where they moved to? Brisbane was where they came from right. to. Right, okay. Um, so they'd never heard of Brisbane, had probably never heard of Australia. He had a choice between Canada and Australia. Uh-huh. And so he chose uh, Australia. Right, oh, very good. I'm an immigrant too. I was <laughs> born in Canada. My parents' English went to Canada first before they came to uh, Australia. And so um, what about brothers and sisters? I have one brother. He's older than me. So okay. I'm, the, I'm the youngest in the family. He's right. five years older than me. Okay, good. And so um, uh, obviously you did your uh, schooling in Brisbane? I did. Okay, great. And what was that like? Um, I guess, uh, again, I... I Never travelled anywhere as such, and so probably never spent all my time in Queensland. Um, 
probably some things that I reflected on later that I didn't necessarily understand this time. So school to me was what I would regard as as average. Okay. Um, it was um, I, I enjoyed school, so mm-hmm. going to school for me wasn't a chore. Yeah. Um, I I was quite sports orientated, so I was always into running and mm-hmm. basketball and cricket. So um, so school to me was was a was a good experience mm-hmm. uh, but mind you I was a compliant kid so right. I didn't necessarily get in trouble too much so school life for me was um, overall was a, an enjoyable experience and probably when I came to the end of my schooling uh, a little bit frightening as I stepped out of school and that, okay. the rigidity and the structure of the program that went with school right and mum worked while you were at school uh, no so we were lucky my mum never worked okay and so uh, from high school directly into university no, I, um, I guess when I finished high school, I wasn't necessarily quite sure mm-hmm. um, what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to pursue banking. I just wasn't necessarily sure where. Okay. So I felt I wanted to have a break. I guess now we would call it a gap year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and what I did is I joined the bank. I originally joined what was then the CBC, the Commercial Banking Company of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lasted there for probably less than two years when another bank called the National Bank of Australasia right. uh, acquired or merged with the CBC to form what was uh, now called National Australia Bank or NAB. And so sorry, you moved to Sydney for that job, did you no, say? No, I stayed in Brisbane. I joined okay. them in Brisbane. Right, okay. And uh, I didn't, well, in fact, I only did one, one tour of duty, which was country service, which was in Toowoomba. Right. And so what was the attraction you said that you knew you wanted to work in banking? Why was banking, you know, a sexy industry to you back then? Um, well, it's a good, it's an interesting question. If I'm honest, um, I, I, if I knew then what I know now, I may well have made different choices. And what I mean by that is, I actually quite like law. Okay. And when I went through uni, I did quite well at law. And right. So had I know knew then, I may well have chosen a slightly different path in banking. Uh huh. But what appealed to me about banking was um, so. I, I saw it as a number-orientated uh, profession, and I like numbers. Okay. Um, I guess what appealed to me is the TV shows that I saw, and I guess I always wanted to do these big deals and mm-hmm. be involved with the, with you know, with the, the things and transactions that govern the world. So to me, banking had a lot, an awful lot of appeal because I also saw it as fundamental to a country's economy, and so mm-hmm. I thought if you were in banking you had a good opportunity to actually influence the, the broader economy hmm. of, of, an, of, a, of a country. I suppose at uh, 16, 17, that's quite deep thinking for somebody of that age. Uh, you know, most people probably weren't thinking about their careers and their plans uh, with as much uh, consideration as that. Um, and so uh, you joined the bank. It was acquired a couple of years later by what became National Australia Bank. And so how did your career unfold? Because I know that you were with NAB for, what, 20 years? I was. So the bank was very kind to me. So I would, even though I spent 20-odd years in the bank, I would probably argue that I've had 10, 10 maybe even more jobs uh, in that time mm-hmm. because really... For anyone that's worked in the bank, working in a branch is very different to working in another branch, very sure. different to working in a, in a department. So sometimes I think um, prospective employers look at one person's career in one organisation and say that person is NAB in, mm-hmm. in my case. But in actual fact, that person has several several jobs within that, that part. NAB was very kind to me. Under NAB, um, I guess the merger didn't really mean a lot to me. I was... You know, I'd only just started, so so to me it was probably I saw more upside. I guess I chose to see more upside than, than downside. But through my career, I guess if I look at NAB, um, some standouts for me, the standout for me at NAB were the people. I mm-hmm. had the privilege of working with some, um, some great mentors, some great people that taught me some great skills in banking uh, and also in people management. Um, I had also... Um, the experience of working with some not so great people, and I also learned some great lessons of how I didn't want to be like right. when I got to their position. So NAB was good in giving me both sides of successful leadership and successful management. Okay, uh, and, and I count myself lucky for having worked for good and bad bosses. Okay, great. Well, why don't we uh, let's delve into that a little bit more? So, what were some of the early lessons that you got about leadership 
that you thought were really good and uh, you were able to apply in your own career to enable you to uh, achieve the success that you have? Well, I guess um, in the in the era that I grew up, that I was cutting my teeth as a young officer in the bank, um, the culture of the organisation was very autocratic. Mm -hmm. So the chain of command was alive and well, and if I sat higher up the tree than you, then your mission in life was to do what I told you to do. Mm -hmm. So that radiated uh, throughout the organisation, and I always got a very strong sense for that chain of command. Now. Um, I guess what that made me realise in the early days was the importance of compliance, mm -hmm. uh, knowing how to, I guess, work the system yep. by, by making sure that you um, knew how to navigate through the system. So uh, in terms of leadership, I guess it taught me the importance of influence. And I started to realise that, you know, irrespective of your position in life, or seniority, you could always influence somebody else. Mm -hmm. so, if, um, so to me, part of leadership is about um, someone's ability to influence or sometimes we say inspire mm -hmm. somebody else to do something more. So I guess in those early days, um, that certainly um, uh, influenced me and, and taught me how do I guess successfully navigate to, to be successful. But the other thing that, that struck to me from the bank that I particularly like and I try to apply here is that in those days the bank was a family mm -hmm. and um, you know you talk about the police force being a family and certainly when I started I played cricket for the bank and I very much realised that the bank behaved like a big family you looked after people and the bank actually cared for its people sadly the bank destroyed that in the 90s mm -hmm. uh, and by the time I got to the 90s you know, there was no sense of family or community within the bank uh, whatsoever, not, not the way I experienced it. So what do you think uh, caused that very intrinsic value in the bank that you enjoyed so much to be eradicated? Um, so leadership and people. Okay. Um, so so um, at the time, um, the then managing director of NAB was very strong on that, strong person, but was very strong on that sense of community and family, and he did some some interesting things in the car park at 500 Berg Street right. uh, to promote that sense of community. Um, for him, that was important, and you could see that. Mm. Uh, for other people that started to come into that, you, you got a, a change in the bank. So the bank went from career people who would join the bank and stay with the bank 40 years to people who sought to come into the bank for a number of years and take and go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so as people came with more of an attitude of taking rather than necessarily giving back to the bank, um, the culture of the bank changed, the mm -hmm. people changed in their outlook. Um, me wanting to do the right thing with you for the good of the bank became more about, I'm only gonna work with you if I'm gonna get something out of it. So all of those things in very subtle ways just started to change the fabric of the organization so we became less less about um, the sense of team mm -hmm. and more about uh, what's good. So I guess you know the greed that we talk about in the nineties, uh, late in the late eighties and into the nineties, to me I think is was only helped by that. Right. And so, do you think that that was a pervasive attitude that came across, you know, the professional um, environment in general, or was that an NAB specific thing? Um, I. I think, so, so I think it wasn't just an NAB specific. So when I talk to um, colleagues that I knew in other organisations, you know, they may say it in a slightly different way to the mm -hmm. way I would recount it, mm -hmm. but similar stories. I don't think it was just a bank thing. It was just a NAB thing or it was just a bank thing. I think it was a society thing. Mm, okay. um, if you have a think about what happened towards the end of the 80s into the early 90s, that's when we got the pyramid, we got all banking sure. failures, Bank of New South Wales failed. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it was just... It was just a tipping stone for mm. a change in society. Mm. And as you say, uh, you had a number of different roles in the National Australia Bank. I think uh, you know your uh, role at the end before you left, uh, head of global business cards. So what do you think it was about you um, and your attributes as a leader and as a professional that enabled you to be offered these opportunities as compared to your peers? So I guess... Um So I knew the business very well, mm -hmm. and um, I'm, a, I'm a rational person. So when I look at change, I look at change rationally. Mm -hmm. I look at what 
you're trying to achieve and can it in fact enhance the situation. So when I started um, the business cards, uh, looking at it, my, my boss at the time, a guy called Mike Lang, said to me, Manuel, um, I don't have any money, um, but, I, but I'm really willing to back you because I think it's a good idea and I think you can deliver it for me. Um, so with really no money other than I guess he was going to cover my wage, um, I set about to create something from nothing. And so when I created Global Business Cards, it was about influencing people in risk management mm -hmm. to consider a different way mm -hmm. of, of changing what was important to the bank from a risk perspective, but to enhance a customer experience. So that was an investment of my time. Mm -hmm. um, when it came down to actually having to spend some money, it was about trading off. So, so I'm a deal maker, so I look for a trade off. And so for example, um, we created uh, the ability for us to have a scoring system for uh, for business credits for, for small business loans. Um, you know, we we achieved more without any money than probably, to be truthful, I could have achieved with money. So sometimes mm -hmm. I think having a lack of resource, a lack of cash, mm -hmm. makes you more resourceful. And I'm sure. a resourceful person. I guess what my boss saw in me was my ability to influence others, my abilities to lead people to to something different. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that I was perceived as a rational person, the fact that I understood banking and people knew that I understood banking, um, you know, the fact that people trusted me, they knew that I wasn't, I'm not a person that acts selfishly for, for my own self gain. Uh, and, and, and also did they realise I'm not bloody minded, I'm not a person who will do something for the sake of it, but, mm -hmm. but I will do something because I actually genuinely believe it will improve something. That was enough for him to back me. And then I guess he gave me the freedom to to experiment, try and learn. So just to understand that a little bit more, you took an initiative to the bank about a way to change the way that they manage their uh, their business cards um, business. Um, and it was a, a greenfield start in terms of uh, delivering this new innovation. Tell us a little bit more about what it actually was. So what it was, um, so the small business sector, uh, if you have a look at small business uh, per se, its familiarity with banking process and banking protocol is more akin to the experience of a consumer credit mm -hmm. than what it is to a business. Mm -hmm. From a banking's point of view, we get more comfortable with how we assess and how we view consumer credit than how we generally view business credit. Mm -hmm. So if you apply for a $10,000 overdraft as a business, it is way more complicated than if you as the principal applied for a $10,000 credit card. Sure. And so that um, experience, that mm -hmm. diversity in the experience makes it scary. Mm. And often what tends to happen is, particularly nowadays, you don't worry about the overdraft, you just get a, a credit card and, yep. and off you go. Sure. Uh, it's, it's just much easier. Um, credit cards have one thing uh, that is um, uh, all, all, almost makes them a ruthless product, and that is they are very efficient from a processing perspective. Mm -hmm. So a credit card lends itself to a centralised model. A credit card lends itself to a very consistent way of processing, whether it's a gold card, a platinum card, whether it gives you X days of rewards or Y days of um, time to pay. The credit card is a very efficient and effective processing platform that is automated. And so approval, or, you know, all the documentation happens in an automated way, all the decisioning happens in an automated way. It's just efficient. It's a very efficient platform. So the challenge was is how do we take someone who relates to a consumer experience more so than a business, how do we create a new customer experience? and develop a set of products that runs on this railway tracks called the credit card processing systems mm -hmm. and deliver something valuable mm -hmm. that they want. And uh, if you look at that from implementation to by the time you left the bank, how would you measure how successful it was? Um, so I left just before it went to market. Okay. Um, but I guess if I look at what they did, um, by the time they went to market, we had an effective scoring system for small business credits, uh, which was something that we didn't have before. We had made some changes to the customer experience, particularly around the risk side, around document execution, um, to recognise the differences in legal, in legal entity status between a consumer and a business. 
Um, we had made changes that actually created a better experience than a traditional business credit card mm -hmm. actually did. Um, um, my former team, I guess I caught up with them a few years later after I'd left, and they said to me that their rate of acquisition was better. Mm -hmm. um, but, but again, you know, this is analytical business, so you learn through numbers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, how much of an investment NAB made in analytics, the analytics side of the business, I'm not sure. Um, so I guess if they weren't mm. um, as successful as they planned, then maybe perhaps they didn't invest as much in, in sure. analytics. Okay, and so uh, 20 years into NAB, uh, you made the move to your current organisation. How did that come about? Um, I guess there was a sobering moment in my life. So I left NAB uh, in December, and in December the year before, I ruptured my Achilles playing basketball. So um, probably something I shouldn't have done, but I did. <laughs> um, and, and I guess that was a sobering thought for me because I guess for my wife and I, it made us think about um, what do we actually want? Mm -hmm. And I guess it made us think about family and, and where family was. And I'd always thought that if I left NAB, I would leave for a job in Melbourne or Sydney. And Brisbane certainly would never have rated for me. Mm. But Because you were living in Melbourne at that I time. I was living in yeah. Melbourne, yes. And so at the time, I thought my family is in Brisbane. So Brisbane sounds um, like a place where we should settle. Mm -hmm. um, so we made the decision um, that I guess I was going to um, go for a sea change in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, Brisbane seemed the most logical place to do it. And the timing was right for us because our kids were within uh, two years of starting high school. So if we were going to move, that would seem like a logical time. Okay. So then it was about finding an opportunity. And when I found uh, this opportunity, uh, I guess what appealed to me was that it had a lot of potential, mm -hmm. albeit at the time I didn't necessarily think they necessarily knew how mm -hmm. to get that potential or realise that potential. But I thought it, it was something, again, it's like business cards. I thought it was something I could I could play with and, and enhance and, and enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, joining the organisation back in 2002, GM Business Services, and then uh, not too long after that, stepping up into your current role of CEO. That's right. Right. And so what led to, uh, to the step into the CEO role? Um, so probably the organisation wanted a change. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say the organisation, I guess the board. Um, I, I guess if I reflect on the board, the board had a... I would probably argue that the board had always had a view of what they wanted, what they thought was possible. But, I mean, their directors, their job is a different role to, to managing the organisation. Sure. So um, their view of what was possible, um, I guess their frustration uh, was also their inability to, to um, organise management in order for them to help realise uh, mm -hmm. some of that opportunity. And I guess they made a decision uh, to part company with the then CEO and, and I guess they'd gotten to know me over 12 months and gave me an opportunity and I guess um, I can remember when they interviewed me, um, I said to them, if you want, if you want the status quo, then I'm the worst person you can ever offer the job to. But if you want to create something different, if you want to actually have a go at creating prosperity and success, um, if you're comfortable with change, then I'm gonna, I'm the guy that's gonna make it happen for you. So fortunately for me, they chose change, and that led me into the role, and the journey began. So given that the uh, CEO role came up, you know, very quickly after you joined the business, mm -hmm. had it been on your radar at the point of joining? in the first place that the CEO uh, role was something that you aspired to and wanted to step into relatively quickly? Uh, not really. So I was in NAB's top 100, so I didn't come here as a stepping stone in my career. Sure. Um, I, I literally did come for a sea change. Mm -hmm. I, I went to Melbourne uh, with a desire to run the bank and I had a pretty good shot at it. Um, but I got to a point where I guess I realised that you know, I realised that mediocrity was a successful strategy in a large organisation. Mediocrity is not something that resonates for me. Yep. Um, I realised that I always had a, a very naive view that said that at some point in time in the organisation, in your own career, you get to a point where you think about what's good for the organisation and your own personal gain takes secondary uh, or it plays a secondary role to, to the good of the organisation. 
Um, what I realised is the more senior I became, um, the CEO had that view. Mm -hmm. Everybody else underneath him didn't quite always measure up mm -hmm. to that. And so I used to go home from my job at NAB, I'm tired, not because I was you know, doing great amounts of work, but because I was influencing so many people to try and focus themselves on what was good for the bank mm -hmm. rather than what was necessarily good for them or for me. Mm -hmm. And um, whilst I was willing to give up, I found that they weren't always willing right. to give up. And so I went away and I thought to myself on, uh, on, a, on a train ride home, uh, out to Camberwell, I thought, well, there's got to be an easy way to make a living. Do I need all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, surely there are people out there that actually want to be successful because that that excites them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I guess for me, coming to Inju was, you know, was that. But I didn't come here for the CEO's role. I actually came because I thought I could help them be successful from within the role. I, I don't necessarily believe you need to be the boss to be successful at what you do or mm. to influence. I think a, a good rational argument from a good rational person is, is powerful. Mm. So um, I didn't need to be the CEO. I didn't perceive I needed to be the CEO in order to make things happen. But you obviously realised um, in AB that the CEO ultimately held the responsibility for uh, creating the culture of the business mm. and also for... Uh, uh, ensuring that people um, made a commitment to delivering the best outcomes for their employer rather than being completely self-serving. So I imagine you looked at what uh, was possible as a CEO and d did you that influence your decision in terms of making the decision yourself that you wanted to step into the role of CEO? Yeah, when the opportunity became apparent to me, um, I made it very clear to mm -hmm. the board that yes, I was absolutely interested. Uh, so when they asked, I said yes. Um, and part of the appeal for me was what you've just said, was the fact that as the CEO, I could actually directly influence um, what I thought was possible to be achieved. I could lead the organisation to perhaps believe in more mm -hmm. than what they thought it could. Um, as the leader of the organisation, it was also about my own credibility with the people that work with me. Did they believe in me? Did they trust me enough to say that I could actually get to where I said I could get to? And then it was about delivery, mm -hmm. making sure that I delivered. Okay. And so what was the original mandate for the role? When you were stepped into CEO, what, what were the early things that uh, the board wanted you to achieve? So um, I was given a list of th six things. Um, but in the main, what the board wanted to do was, what is our strategic direction? Mm -hmm. So the question they put to me is, what should we be? They had views that life could get better, and for them, you know, we were very focused on costs. So it's how can we how can we make processing costs cheaper for our mutual members? Mm -hmm. um, so that was a the central theme that the six things gravitated about, and one of those six things was to develop a strategic plan that took us forward. Um, what I did was actually look at the business. Now, keep in mind, I'd already had 12 months to look at this thing, so I'd had a look under the bonnet mm -hmm. and kind of understood where we were. In some things, we were doing well. In a lot of things, we weren't doing quite so well. Not because we couldn't, but because we probably didn't see the need to uh, do it. So when I came in, um, one of the challenges that I put to the board is that we actually needed to do two things. One is we needed to change our focus around profits and we had to actually focus on making money so mm -hmm. that we could actually invest in our own future to create something different. So and prior to that, it had almost been run as a, a not-for-profit, yeah. purely yeah. representing the interests of the mutual. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So whenever we needed to do something, the mutuals would tip in money, and what mm -hmm. I said was really we have to stand on our own two feet. Mm -hmm. So we had to create the ability to fund our own growth without drawing on capital or drawing capital uh, calls on them. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I said to them is that we needed to grow. If you want payments is a scale business, so if you want to lower the cost of processing costs for somebody else, for in this case the mutuals, the only way we could do that was to get more volume. So how do we find new volume? We need to find new customers. How do we get new customers? We need to focus the organisation on a desire to grow. So we did that and we started to search for opportunities to grow to logical areas where, where payment services were actually required. Now offering them was a very simple offering compared to what we can offer today. But um, through growth and through growth drive profits, through profits 
um, look to create a different future, we were able to start to realise some of that opportunity that the board started to see. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, stepping into a CEO role for the first time uh, with some self-reflection, did you discover within yourself some skill gaps and you thought, wow, now I'm a CEO, I need to really invest in those attributes to ensure I can deliver the best possible outcomes? So when I um, stepped into the role, probably the best, the biggest challenge I found, it was quite sobering to have, you know, when I started here, there was 28 people. <laughs> so to have 28 people kind of relying on me for... 28 employees. 28 employees. Right. Uh, for the duration of their career. Some of them, um, this is all they had worked. Some right. of them had you know, uh, couldn't see themselves working anywhere else and some of them weren't quite sure what they were doing. So I found myself as how do I take 28 people at very different stages of life for them, how do I take them who are looking to me to create security and how do I make something out of that? And so I, I guess I, um, leadership is something that's always fascinated me. It fascinated me in the NAB and it fascinates me still. And whilst I've come a long way, I'm still but a pilgrim on the journey. Sure. And I continue to learn. And I guess for me, my own, um, the gaps that I saw um, were around communication, mm -hmm. were around um, how do I learn, how, how can I be more, um, uh, a more effective? So I talked about influencing before. How can I become a more effective influence? influencer of my people mm -hmm. to actually believe in what we're trying to create because really what I was outlining in our growth plan was way beyond what they thought was possible mm -hmm. for an organisation like us. Mm -hmm. So um, communication, communication, communication um, became a really big thing for me. I was interested in anyone that could talk to me about communication. Mm -hmm. um, I looked at people, I learn, I learn a lot by looking at other people who I think are really good at something. Mm -hmm. So um, I had had the privilege of working with some really good communicators at NAB mm -hmm. uh, and and you know my chairman at the time was a guy called Michael Hearn former premier and I thought he was um, he was very effective in how he communicated with the mutual organization so I learned quite a lot from him mm. um, but yeah it was uh, my main focus was around communication because I needed to be able to be crystal clear but I needed to inspire you mm -hmm. to want to trust me that's interesting I, I note from uh your background, you did a Bachelor of Business at uh, USQ. Um, at what point in your career did you do that? Um, so I start when I went to Toowoomba, my, my sole country duty with the bank. Right. Uh, when I was up there, I thought, what a wonderful thing to do is to go back into study. So yeah. I started, I did my first semester um, as a part-time student mm -hmm. whilst working in Toowoomba. Uh, and then I moved to Brisbane. And then I did my degree part by correspondence sure. until I finished. I remember uh, at the time it was one of the only universities that really it offered was. that. And so, um, uh, you know, looking then, you've moved into your role of CEO, you've recognised communication is uh, an area for professional development. At any point did you think, I'd like to go back to university and perhaps do an MBA or, or take on some more formal education? Or, or where are the ways that you've sourced your professional development um, in your later career? So I guess um, I am. So I guess like everybody, I'm, I'm busy, and so I thought uh, at at this at the stage of life where where I was trying to balance the demands of my work with four young children, um, probably a formal degree or form further formal study wasn't probably going to work for me mm -hmm. uh, at that stage of life. Work life balance would have just kilted the wrong way, and uh, but. So what I did is I'm selective about where I invest time in or all money in. So I tend to go to uh, one or two key things a year where I feel I'm going to get value out of. Um, some of that is um, uh, in terms of the industry change. Um, so I go uh, to the World Mobile Congress uh, pretty much most years. And I do that because I find that's a very challenging, from an industry perspective, a very challenging conference to go to where I feel quite rejuvenated. Mm -hmm. But I'm on a journey of communication, I'm on a journey of leadership, and a lot of these, um, I guess, more upper-end uh, conferences uh, attract very good speakers. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I've had, through these forums, I've had the opportunity to go first-hand and listen to people 
people, I think, have got strong messages to tell and challenging messages to tell, mm-hmm. but are very have been very effective. And mm. so I learn a lot by looking at someone's style. I'm a, quite a diagnostic person, mm-hmm. so I can observe you and and take what I want okay. um, from your style. Mm-hmm. And uh, you uh, mentioned uh, Mike Hearn as the uh, chair at the time. He had quite a mentoring influence in terms of your development as well. Absolutely. I I knew nothing about mutuals. Mm -hmm. When I got here, um, mutuals just weren't relevant to me because my job at NAB never took me in that that path. So Mike, um, uh, you know, Mike um, had a very good way of communicating with the mutuals and he very much understood the the ethos that sort of made mutuals who they are, certainly Uh the ones that were with us. And so Mike was very kind and generous in how he um, imparted some of that wisdom mm-hmm. to help me understand how I could be more effective in working in my working relationships, both with my credit union directors, but also with my credit union mm. um, customers and shareholders. Okay, sure. What about in terms of uh, within the business? I mean, you mentioned that one of the things you loved about NAB was this uh, almost family-style culture, and uh, and what are some of the initiatives you've done since you've been in your current CEO role to really enhance and take the culture in the direction that you wanted it to go? So I guess um, it became very evident to me that it, although we were 28 people, we were very uh, fragmented, mm-hmm. uh, you know, quite siloed in, in ourselves, which sounds st- strange for 28 peoples. Now we're 180 odd people, and I guess if we haven't hadn't done some of these things, then the propensity to become more silo in our thinking would have been even greater now. So when I started, um, I created, um, you know, so I'm uh, so I am Spanish, so food's a big part of my life. Sure. Um, and so for me, uh, bringing people around a meal was always a good thing to do. Now, in the days of 28 days, I think 28 people, we started something that we've now evolved, and we started with fish and chip days. So okay. once a month, we would have um, fish and chips, uh, which was the stable diet at the time. <laughs> uh, Doesn't sound very Spanish, though. No, not very Spanish, right. but, but the food thing is. <laughs> and, and I guess what that did is it brought us together and brought us talking to each other. Okay. So one department would talk to another department mm-hmm. to actually get to know each other. And although they knew each other, it's it's understanding each other at a different level than what you normally do in normal, sure. normal office communications. I guess from there we evolved into what we now run, which is tribal challenges, and we do this every second month. Right. And so we now have the business split into four different teams. And these teams compete in some fun activities every day. Uh, sorry, every every time we have this. Mm-hmm. And of course, we got to have food, so we we put on lunch, and then we put on some ice creams, and that creates our, uh, an ability for our people to work with each other. These teams aren't from one department. There, you know, you could be in finance and work right. with someone in yep. client services. But the most important thing to me in all of that is that the embryo of that started is that fundamentally I needed to improve customer service. Mm-hmm. In order to, you know, we all have customers, whether it's an external customer or an internal customer. Someone delivering service to an external customer can't fulfill that delivery of service if the internal people that they rely on to deliver some of that service aren't working for them. Mm-hmm. So the tribal challenges was at, at the in the first instance was about actually getting our people to deliver better customer service to our customers by getting us to know each other and mm-hmm. actually getting us to want to work with each other. And that worked. Okay. And our customer satisfaction is over 80% right. with all our members, all our customers. Um, so that achieved that success. But of course that had a secondary effect, which is it created community, it mm-hmm. created family, and it mm-hmm. created a sense of one of belonging to the organization. So now everything that we do is very much favored around. So, so I keep saying, you know, we're a family. And the reality is we are a family because families stick together and families help each other. And so to me, central to our culture is this desire that we want to help each other. We want us, you know, I don't know too many families that don't want the best for their children or children want the best for their parents. Mm -hmm. So we're the same. We want to be successful. I don't hide that and I don't make light of it. Um, I'm absolutely serious about being successful. But I also believe I can be successful and have some fun. I -hmm. also believe I can be successful and give my staff a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging. 
I think I can help my, my staff achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve in this organisation. And like a family, we rejoice when our people do well and we help them when they're not doing so well. And I think that if you came and worked for us, um, that would be some of the point you would see in our organisation. We don't always get it right, but we try very hard. Okay, very good. And so 12 years into uh, your role here as CEO, other than culture, which is obviously, you know, such a critical thing that you're most proud of, you know, if you had to hang your hat on one key achievement and say, that's uh, a really great example of where I've been able to achieve great outcomes for this organisation, what would that be? It's just one. So if I look at us as an organisation, probably what gives me the greatest um, sense of achievement is how I've seen some of our people evolve. Mm -hmm. So we have people today, um, so so my my point is leadership. Um, I think as an organisation, whatever tomorrow holds for us will be underpinned by our ability for our people stop being managers and start being leaders mm-hmm. for our people to want to inspire their people to go for something greater than what they have today. So when I look at us as an organisation, I would say my greatest sense of satisfaction is that people today believe in a much greater and brighter future than what they did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. And so... Um uh, for those who are listening to this podcast who are aspiring CEOs or senior executives, if you had to distill your own experience into some core pieces of advice that you would offer, what would they be? I guess I would say this. Number one is um, you have to deliver strategy. So you have to be able to develop a plan. Mm-hmm. But developing a plan is probably only worth three out of ten. Seven out of ten is for actually making it happen. So you need to develop a plan, but you also need to be able to make it happen. A lot of people can can develop a plan, but actually can't make it happen. So be good at execution. Be ruthlessly good at execution because that's what's going to make a difference. The second thing that I would say to people is don't underestimate the value of leadership. You know, you're always leading, whether it's you're leading with your direct reports, whether you're leading to the people down the organisation, or whether you're leading... To the, you know, with the board or, or your, your shareholders. So leadership and your ability to inspire, your ability to challenge, your ability to rally the teams together when they necessarily may not want to work together mm-hmm. um, is absolutely important. And the last thing that I would say is that you have to have this belief. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your people. And the belief in self is important because as a, as a leader, as a CEO, um, you often stand on your own mm-hmm. and, and you can't look up the CEO's book of secrets to find out the answer. So you, if you don't believe in yourself enough to, for you to take some risk, then you're going to struggle as a CEO because mm-hmm. you're going to look for somebody else to make those decisions for you. And if I go back to execution, you won't execute because mm. execution is all about risk. Sure. And so believe in yourself, believe in your people, because I know now, when I first arrived here, I achieved a lot of things in my own right. Now I achieve through my people. Mm -hmm. So believe in your people, that your people can now actually deliver the ideas that you may have in your head. Mm -hmm. And I think this point about execution is a critical one. Um, What's an example of where you've executed in recent times to enable you to achieve a great outcome? so Coles. Okay. So our Coles project, Coles came to market in August with their uh, uh, Coles prepaid card, which mm-hmm. is on sale in their stores. And if you buy some, that would be terrific. <laughs> uh, but Coles is an example to me. That was our biggest software release that we have ever done. So it's like a gift card. Uh, prepaid, like a bank account, okay. but you preload. If you think of a prepaid, um, a prepaid phone, yep. same thing, but on a piece of plastic. Right. Okay. Um, so that was our biggest software release mm-hmm. uh, for what we had to deliver for Coles uh, in the, our organisation's history. Um, we delivered it um, on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a slight delay, but it was by mutual agreement that it suited Coles and, and we were happy to accommodate that. But the significance of that was that we planned well for it. We had the risk. We had to make a decision. Do we wait until a contract is actually signed mm-hmm. before we start development? 
or do we start development in anticipation that we are going to be able to complete that contract so that we can hit the, the date that we've committed to? We took some risk. Um, we started developing before um, contracts were actually executed. So if it went over, we'd done some dough. Right. Um, but then our teams worked through the issues. And look, at the beginning of that deal, when mm -hmm. we were going through the sales process, uh, I'm not sure that everybody believed in what we could do. Yet, you know, as a consequence of that deal, we now have a call centre that we didn't have before. We now have a program management capability that we didn't have before. Um, we built an online shop that we ne had never done before, not to mention the payment product that we actually delivered to market. Mm -hmm. So we did things that at that time were beyond the, the realms of our possibility. Right. So um, that to me, you know, ruthlessly good execution mm -hmm. has inspired my people to be more confident about the next deal. Mm -hmm. And how long does a project like that take from inception to delivery? Uh, it took us 18 months. Right, okay. So, and I imagine that... It, it was a big project. Actually. Right. <laughs> and uh, that now creates, a, I suppose, a new platform for you to leap off into much bigger opportunities because you've had that experience uh, and delivered successfully. A absolutely. Uh, platform with Coles, platforms with other people. I guess as we, over the last 12 years, you know, the people that we are doing business with today were not the people we were able to do business with 10 years ago. Sure. So, so I guess um, as we worked our way up the value chain and as our customers have become bigger and more demanding and, you know, um, more creative and expectant in what they want. So too have we been able to grow with them. And mm -hmm. so, yes, now Coles is a wonderful platform for us to go into other opportunities that we're working with at the moment. Okay, fantastic. So looking towards the future now, I mean, you've been in this role for 12 years. Uh, what are you hoping to achieve and aspire to over, say, the next five to 10 years of your own career? Um, at, at a personal level, uh, I guess for me, at some point in time, I will need to transition my own horizons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess um, for me, what I'd like to achieve over the next five to ten years, um, I guess I'd like to see this organisation. Uh, I have an ambition that I want to take this organisation from where it is at the moment at around about $6 million profit. Uh, over the next ten years, I think we now have a business that is robust enough that we can increase that tenfold to $60 million. Mm -hmm. So whilst that seems like a very uh, big, hairy, audacious goal, and, and it is, and don't misunderstand, it's not necessarily going to be easy, but I think as an organisation we now have the platform to achieve that. So what I want to do over the next uh, five to ten years is inspire my people to see that as a reality mm -hmm. rather than as, as a goal. Fantastic. And, and I guess at a personal level, um, I want to keep learning about leadership. It, mm -hmm. it, um, the more I think, the more I reflect on leadership, the more I realise that it actually underpins my own success. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And uh, uh, in terms of your uh, things that you enjoy when you're not at work, I mean, obviously work is such a, a big part of who you are and your desire to improve as a leader and so on, but when you're not here, what do you like to get up to? Um, I love cycling, okay. so I probably don't get enough time to do it. But right. whenever I can get a chance to get out on the bike, I'm out on the bike. Right. And so how many k's a, day, a week would you do? Um, well, not, not, not as many as I'd like. <laughs> but uh, on average, I would probably do somewhere between 100 or between 80 and about 140. Okay. So uh, not too shabby. Uh, it's amazing how many uh, you know, men of our age, uh, uh, what do they call them, middle-aged men in Lycra, I'm uh, constantly amazed that golf seems to be very passe. Now it's uh, cycling is where it's at. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I agree. I think golf used to be it. I think cycling's taking over, which is great. Great for the sport in Australia. And I imagine uh, your kids must be uh, finished high school now. Uh, I've got one left in high school. Okay, okay. One so, um, excellent. Well, fantastic. So before we wind it up, because I know uh, you've got uh, things you need to get on with, any final uh, things that you'd like to add to the conversation perhaps that I haven't asked about you'd like to leave the listeners with? No, look, the only thing I would I would just say is I would come back and, and say the most, you know, the most challenging, the easiest thing to do in life, I think, is to actually 
be mediocre. I think it's one of the most successful strategies that you can employ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the hardest thing in life to do is to actually differentiate yourself and actually be different. Um, strive for excellence. I mean, we, we talk about striving for excellence, but striving for excellence is really hard. And striving for excellence is about risk-taking. And I guess for me, um, at a personal level, the, the, the thing that I would encourage anyone to do is to have the courage to dream of big dreams, have the courage to believe in something better than what you have today, but make sure you back that up with the tenacity to actually achieve it. Mm -hmm. It's all about this idea of execution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dream the dream, but make sure that you uh, put in the necessary effort to get there uh, under your own steam. Absolutely. Right. Well, that's fantastic. So, Manuel, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Richard. It's been a pleasure talking to you and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Manuel. I certainly did. And I have to be honest, I wasn't familiar with his organisation in due prior to preparing for this podcast. I certainly found uh, his conversation about the business very interesting and I think they have a business model which is going to continue to grow and succeed under his leadership into the future. I look forward to having you along for future Arate podcasts and in the meantime, have a great afternoon.